Welcome to Indie Stars Cover 2 Podcast. I am Nat Newell, Indie Stars Colts editor. I'm filling in for Joel A. Erickson, who was on vacation this week. Uh, obviously, I have our Colts, other Colts insider, Nate Atkins, here with me. A uh, ton going on, so uh, even though Joel was we'd like to have Joel here, but, uh, but uh, we're not also going to keep him from vacation. Um, but we definitely need to have a conversation about uh, owners' meetings and pro days and everything else. So uh, we'll jump right in here, Nate. Um, listening to Ballard and Ursay mostly, uh, or I shouldn't say listening to, reading what Joel had, reading the quotes uh, from the owners' meetings, I guess I'd say I'm a little less confident in what the what we might see this year from the Colts than I was prior to uh, the owners' meetings. Um, but what was your uh, take reading what Joel's work and uh, seeing what else was coming out of, uh, out, out of Arizona last week? Yeah, I was very interested to see how they would approach uh, the questions in Arizona. We even teed it up on this podcast because I'm just kind of curious to figure out how kind of long ranging their view is for the next version of them. You know, they hire a new coach in Shane Steichen. So usually when you have a first year head coach, um, expectations are a little lower, but they brought back a GM. So trying to figure out, are they in a rebuild or are they uh, are they treading water or are they uh, do they think they can go for it now? And I guess the best the the one of those three you'd have to go with is that they're treading water, but it did feel like some mixed messaging um, coming out there. Where you know Shane Steichen came out and said, you know, you want to try and go for it every year. He's obviously been in that mode the past couple of years with the Eagles and almost won the Super Bowl this year. But that is not really how you know the the rest of the offseason has gone. They haven't really done going for it moves. I mean, I guess you could consider. You know, getting a Pro Bowl kicker—that's usually more of a finishing touch move. But that's that was a more of a five-year contract. The kind of guys they've gone for are either either one or the other. It's either just a stopgap type of one-year option, like a Gardner Minshew, or it's been something that's almost creating you know a window for the next four to five years, like Samson Ebukam and uh, and Matt Gay. So I I didn't really get a sense from. Uh, the quotes from Chris Ballard, Jim Ursay, or Shane Steichen that they fully know exactly where they're at right now with that. I mean, it just seems more like they are, they know the quarterback decision is going to rule over everything and how fast or slow that guy comes along is going to ultimately tell them the answers to this question of how soon can they compete. It seems like they're willing to accept that next year there's not going to be that kind of a year for them. At least that's, their moves on offense really lead me to believe that where they signed, I guess, one starter in Isaiah McKenzie, but even that might be, he might end up being the fourth guy. If they draft someone, they just really haven't gone after any of the holes on offense. It almost feels more like they're in this waiting game of seeing how this quarterback offseason is going to play out from the first two picks in the draft that they will not be making to whether Lamar Jackson is actually an option or not for them. Seems a little unlikely at this point to, just how much of a buildup do they need if they end up with either Will Levis, Anthony Richardson, or maybe even Hendon Hooker? Each one of those guys comes with a different time frame of when they might play. So they kind of feel like they're a little frozen to me where I didn't get the sense from the three of them that they were on one page as far as whether this is a rebuild, whether this is a going for movement, or whether this is just sort of a treadwater retool. I think it still feels like that's all work in progress. Yeah, the one thing that jumps out to me is DeForest Buckner. Um, if you're going for it, you want him on the roster. If you're not, if you're rebuilding, you trade him, and I think you get a minimum of a second round pick. You could probably get a late first round pick because what contending team um, wouldn't be interested in uh, a defensive tackle like him? Um, and it just seems. I mean, I guess, like I say, I mean, it's just a confidence thing. Do they really know what they're doing? It seems like they're sort of trying to go both ways on it. In some ways, it's it, just listening to what and reading what Steichen and Ballard said. It seemed like they were ready to to rebuild where Ursay still wants to hold on a year. And that's usually where you, you don't want to be there. I think that's usually where you get caught in the middle and you have a hard time and you end up being neither, basically. Um, so, yeah, I, I just thought it seemed... Uh, uh, you know, I just came out of what I heard, what I read. I was less confident that about what next year than I, at least from a direction standpoint, than I was going into the weekend. Yeah, I, I will point out, though, that like 
part of this is just the nature of the setup that they chose with the the marriage they have between Chris Ballard and Shane Steichen, where when you bring back a general manager, that is that is almost never just a full tear it down rebuild. That is not how GMs operate. They don't draft and develop and create five year plans just to you know ship guys out. So it almost feels like in the way Chris Ballard explained the Stephon Gilmore trade is almost like they feel open minded to doing it when the opportunity really presents itself or even kind of presents itself. I mean, they only got a fifth round pick out of Stefan Gilmore, but it cleared 10 million and sent him to a place he wants to go or would be happy to go to. But like a new GM would be in here at this moment. I'm pretty confident. And he would be making all these moves uh, that you mentioned that we've bantered about, you know, DeForest Buckner, uh, Ryan Kelly, Mo Ali Cox, Kenny Moore, some of these different options just to, just almost to sort of reset it to kind of to kind of make it obvious that this is a reset that you're going to clear cap, roll it over into next year. Uh, I I think that would be especially on the defensive side of the ball, where um, you know the the one argument to keeping uh, talent here or adding to it, if even if you're in a rebuild, is to support that rookie quarterback to keep him from just being completely overwhelmed. But you can ship off a guy like DeForest Buckner you know, or Kenny Moore and be a little less concerned about that. Uh, that's where it feels like they're a little bit in the middle is that they're not shipping these guys off outside of Gilmore, but they're not adding a lot to it either. They're not, you know, I was curious to see if they would pick a lane this offseason where either they would go up to the number one pick, just trade all these assets, knowing it's an overpay, but they're just saying they're not going to miss on their favorite quarterback and he's a day one guy and they'll live with the growing pains of the roster. Or I thought if they took the, more of the route they're in now where they're sitting back, they, they don't want to pay that high price. That's where I thought you might support that rookie more. As you say, okay, we kept our picks. You know, we've cleared some cap space. Let's let's go out and get some of the free agents that can give this guy the best chance because he's not going to be the most pro-ready. They're not going to end up with uh, Bryce Young and probably not C.J. Stroud in this current path that they're on. This is where it feels like they're getting caught in the middle is that I don't see them choosing either one of those lanes. And it's some of it's Chris Ballard's approach in general, where he's very value based. He's patient. We know that he's in the draft. He lets the board fall to him. And I think when you're selecting players, generally that has been a good approach. But I do think that their issue for a few years now has been really finding a lane. Like last year, if they were going to go for it with Matt Ryan, really go after some of those veteran offensive players the way that the Rams and Buccaneers did when they traded for older quarterbacks. And then this year is like kind of the opposite. You don't have that answer quarterback. You're very likely going to get a rookie who's probably not going to be very ready day one. That seems like where it's more either support that rookie and really build around him or, or you know, if you want to avoid that that sort of huge learning curve, go up and get the guy who's most ready. Or just I've been letting it play out because I, I don't want to prejudge, you know, if they do have a plan that's going to come together. But the longer it goes on and hearing the way that they've described it, it doesn't come off to me like they have gotten that plan yet and they just might not and it may just come down to how the how the draft shakes out and then also what they can do with that rookie quarterback to kind of overcome some of the instability around him yeah you mentioned a couple names that we should touch on here and and, and and ryan kelly and kenny moore keeping kenny moore i I understood just even if it's just simply from the standpoint of you you need corners they don't have corners so i understand why you you keep him around obviously he was a pro bowler two years ago maybe he's not quite as good a fit with the current scheme but still a player that uh, you know still a starter i was surprised again kelly i I was surprised they kept uh just from a standpoint of a, a little bit where are you at as a team but I don't know that the value is there for keeping him at what you're paying him versus what you could have kept, you know, what you could have uh, taken off the salary cap. So I was a little surprised um, that they not that they kept more, but they did keep Kelly. And again, Gilmore's the the opposite of all this. You, if you're not going for it, you trade Gilmore. It hasn't been said. I don't know if this is true. I kind of assumed that Gilmore went to them and said, hey, I'd like to go to a team that's that's contending. And if that's the case, then it's to the Colts credit that they were willing to do that. Um, and obviously they benefit, as you noted, from the $10 million in salary cap space. But again, we just sort of get back to the point where there's these key players and yet the moves they're making with them is not picking a lane, as you said. Yeah, that's where it gets interesting is that when you look at an, just an individual situations and in a vacuum you can understand why they arrive at certain decisions like you mentioned with more they need corners like they they're right now slated to 
potentially play an undrafted free agent at corner. So when you have one under contract that you believe has, you know, is better than how he played last year, you can return him. I, Ryan Kelly, they also, I think they b- believe he's better than he played last year. And to cut him, you know, they would save about eight million. They would eat four and a half million. So it's about you. Know, do you like what you can get for eight million? Um, if you move on from him, they still. I know he didn't play super well, but they still really like his uh, leadership. And I think in their minds, they think if if things are a little bit easier around him with you know what they have at right guard and left tackle, that that maybe maybe there's a little bit more there. You know, I I think that Chris Ballard does he does definitely does think his offensive personnel is better than most people do. That that if a rookie steps in, it's not quite as as dire as it has to be. But that that to me was all contingent upon what he's always said, which is rewiring the offensive line and fixing the plan there, left tackle, right guard, and just the overall demeanor of the group. So the surprising part is that they haven't done anything in that group. There's not been a single veteran addition there, and I, I'm not sure how to read that yet. I'm sure I'm sure the draft is going to play into that. I know part of it is that they had the most expensive offensive line in the NFL last year, so adding to that might not be the efficient route to solving that issue. But to your point, that's where, you know, if you did move on from Ryan Kelly and maybe they wanted, you know, Danny Pinter was mostly out of position last year at right guard. That could have been an option at center, maybe him and a, you know, guy to compete with. There were cheaper, you know, routes to to doing this too. It's just been interesting to see them kind of keep it the way it is. I think it mostly speaks to the idea that, that Chris Ballard does think that this, if they get just, a little bit of quarterback stability, the same guy in there, the same guy playing, let him build chemistry with the receivers that they certainly like. And Michael Pittman Jr. and Alec Pierce, let these tight ends grow up a little bit. Let Jonathan Taylor get healthy. You know, you you could see a world where with Shane Steichen, if he's as talented as they think he is, that this is a lot better than the way that, that maybe it looks right now. Uh, but to me, that's still going to be contingent upon getting a very good plan for the offensive line, because no matter how good those pieces are around him or how good Shane is or how talented the rookie is. A lot of rookie quarterbacks fall apart when the offensive line is broken. And that would also kind of waste the Jonathan Taylor effect. So they have to get the offensive line back to at least kind of an average place. And uh, I'll just be interested to see what they have planned for that because just rolling back the group they had last year, I just, I don't think anyone's going to find that to be the right solution. Yeah. And I didn't understand why you don't go out and get, a veteran, uh, hopefully left tackle. I'm not even talking, and I don't have a name in mind. I'm not, but I'm not talking about a, a Pro Bowl left tackle. But if you get out, go out there and get someone who's a solid um, tackle, I mean, it just opens up so many options. You have that person compete at left tackle. If Raymond is not uh, ready, or if you know, you can move Raymond to right tackle and you can move Braden Smith to right guard. Maybe you can move Raymond to right guard. Just seem like one player you, and, or maybe Smith and, and Raymond prove that they're the two best guys. And then you got a, a swing tackle for depth, um, given that the decisions they made last year on the offensive line didn't work at all. It's hard to have too much confidence in the decision making at the, at that, at those positions. Um do you any? I'm not going to pretend that we can look at assistant NFL coaches and and know what their impact is going to be. But did you like? What do you know anything about Sperano Jr. Uh, who they brought in at offensive line? Any any thoughts on his hire? Uh, with with the offensive line hire, you know, I've always thought that that's going to be the most important hire for Shane Steichen because I think it's always one of the most important positions, but also the rookie quarterback coming in and what's the position that has to get, you know, better the most on this team, it's offensive line. So I know that he was, uh, he was certainly interested in Roy Istvan, who's the assistant line coach of the Eagles, very well regarded, but he's been choosy in recent years and ended up, uh, ended up staying after Nick Sirianni kind of made a, a late push with, with some of the assistants they were looking at. So that's where it kind of puts Shane in a little bit more of a difficult spot as a first-time head coach to kind of pivot on a plan at a position as nuanced as offensive line. And Tony Sperano Jr., I imagine that uh, he came, you know, he came for the same offense as the running backs coach Andre Smith, and it almost kind of feels like they just want to build some continuity in that run game. The, the Giants were incredibly impressive with Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones, and uh, the way that they kind of developed that. Uh, and if you look at Tony Sperano, his career, that, that's kind of been his thing is he designs run games and they 
turn out to be pretty well. If you're going to be a little bit more skeptical, it's about uh, some of the pass pro numbers for the Giants and the other teams he's been around have not always been there. Um, if you look at how a lot of teams operate, they, they look at that as more, um, they put a little bit more of the run game on the offensive line coach because he's designing the blocking scheme and he's getting five guys to play as one, whereas pass pro is a little bit more uh, the play calls from, you know, from like Shane Steichen's level, whether it's five-step drops, seven-step drops, um, how they use tight ends in that, but also the talent of those players that shines in more than the run game. So it feels to me like they're trying to create sort of a package where Chris Ballard and Shane Steichen and Jim Bob Cooter are going to kind of put it, put their heads together to, to give them the best chance in pass protection. Whereas uh, Tony Sperano with, with Andre Smith is going to sort of develop this run game out. And if, you know, and, and it's just an interesting approach because I think the pass pro is more important. It, it's I mean, it, it is more important just for the league, but especially with a rookie quarterback. But I think the way that they looked at the situation with, you know, when they weren't able to get um, maybe their top choice at this position was, you know, let's try to get back to being the best running team in football. And if we can do that and get Jonathan Taylor there, if we can extend Taylor and actually get the most out of him in this run game, that's going to make life a lot easier for the next, you know, three to four years on a rookie quarterback. And that's always been the way that Chris Ballard wants to build is do not ask your quarterback to carry the entire team. He needs to just sort of be, you know, he's a very important part, but not the guy that that's that's going to drag this whole thing. And I think in a way that's smart with, you know, any of these rookies, but especially the ones they end up with, they're going to get in trouble if they're asking Will Levis or Anthony Richardson to carry the whole team. But of course, part of this is, you know, if you put them in dangerous spots and pass protection, that's kind of what they're doing, too. So they've got to try and nail both ends of it. Uh, one of the more interesting comments I found from from Chris Ballard at the at the owners meetings was his. He, I mean, obviously, they've been talking about whether they're going to take a quarterback at number four or who they're going to take at number four. And he had a comment about basically that they like the depth um, at quarterback, which I find interesting because, again, I'm no draft expert, but. I'll, you only hear about five guys. <laughs> so if you like the depth, that sure sounds like saying you like Hendon Hooker, um, which is, you know, certainly uh, nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I mean, I guess we're, and you've been going to the pro days. Um, you and Joel talked about it after um, Stroud and Levis, and you went to Anthony Richardson's last week. Um, wh where do you think that, uh, you know, or what are your thoughts on after having seen, Three of the the top quarterbacks. What are your thoughts on uh, where the Colts should be at uh, in terms of those players? It's always interesting this time of year when when teams are they're answering for the situation they're in, and you know they they have to project confidence in a plan. So whoever they end up with, whoever they pick it, whether it's three or four, or if somehow they end up not picking till the second round, they're going to say that the guy they take is the best in the class, and they're going to you know give him that confidence. So it can be hard to read their comments in the moment now of how much is this the way they felt initially, why they didn't trade up versus how much is this, you know, them dealing with the situation they're in and finding confidence in that. And I think it's probably a balance of that. Chris Ballard did not. Um, he really didn't believe that the price to go up was was justifiable given this class. I think that's where he talk about, talks about depth is that while there's an order to the quarterbacks, you know, and there should be he didn't feel like there was only one guy that if they didn't get him, that they were out on it. And I think he has to believe in more than one though, because the Texans are sitting there at number two. So if Bryce Young is in that group at the top, you have to believe it goes beyond that too. So when he talks about depth, it, it could absolutely, you know, he may just be talking about Hedden Hooker, who I, I think has, is a sneakier option for them than maybe some people have, want to admit um, or, or think too much about just when you make the, connections to Peyton Manning and um, Jim Bob Cooter's connections to the University of Tennessee and how much they put on the sort of person face of the franchise element of this that Henry Hooker just handled and about the toughest way at Tennessee and the SEC to beat Alabama and get that program back on track. Um, there's a lot to talk yourself into there. I also think, though, that it's possible that he's thinking about Will Levis, too, because as this has gone on, Levis is one that uh, he, he's sort of always kind of hovering there, but he's never – He's rarely the guy that anyone has going in the top two of the position. And I think more of the mock drafts, the odds are putting Anthony Richardson a little bit higher. And so it could it, it could be that that Will Levis is in that group too. 
and it wouldn't surprise me at all actually being around Will Levis at Kentucky. I, I definitely got the feel that that could be a guy that they are very much into because he's, if you think of the past two years, the quarterbacks they've gone after, they've swung one direction or the other. They went all after traits with Carson Wentz, who had this first round upside, top five upside, uh, MVP contender for one season. But, you know, he didn't have that professionalism element. He didn't, he couldn't evolve his game the right way. He wasn't obsessive enough to keep um, taking it from the practice field to the games and being consistent and reliable. And then they swung the other direction where last year they went all all the other way with Matt Ryan, which was that professionalism, the teammate, the leadership, the um, the, the work ethic, the you know the ability to be coachable and take it from practice to the games. And they lost all the traits. And so Will Levis to me is the one guy I think be after probably after C.J. Stroud, he's the one guy that that's healthy that I think checks all those boxes the best, which is he has the six four frame. He can move around. He can. He's a powerful runner when he's out there running. He could throw 75 yards. But he also has a very obsessive uh, personality, obsessive work ethic. And the biggest thing that came out to me from his uh, from the trip to Kentucky was just how much his teammates just absolutely love that guy. And look, like all the teammates like these quarterbacks. There's not like these are like none of these guys were problems. And, and that's how it is on a team. Your quarterbacks are a leader. But with Will Levis specifically, every coach and player that I you, all you had to do is mention the name Will Levis and their eyes just sort of lit up. And it was like you were talking about the guy, the person that has kind of changed the trajectory of their careers. And some of them, I think, feel that way. Is that Kentucky has, you know, they were building, budding program under Mark Stoops. But Will Levis chose them in the transfer portal and they go 10 and 3, the most wins they've had since the 70s. And, you know, and, and then last year was a bit of a dip, but it was a dip still for Kentucky to have a bad season and go seven and six in the SEC, I think still says something about where they've come. And Will Levis to them was the guy that just came in and put everything on his shoulders. And so on the outside, you know, I, I thought this is the combine. I've heard talk about it. He can come off kind of arrogant when he talks about, you know, I have a cannon. I want to show it off. And, you know, I, I just didn't show these things because I wasn't healthy. And it can come off a little bit like, um, like he's, you know, a little too confident. Uh, but to them, that's inside that building. That was him taking on those challenges and saying, like, you know, put it all on me and I will I'll take us places and I'll carry this team. And I think that the Colts will really like what they see with that. It's it's tricky, of course, because you got to get him to play well enough to to be that guy. And then you got to hope that, like, the, the negatives with him aren't negatives forever, like his pocket presence and turnovers. But he's the guy that that in this process stood out to me as the best balance between what they've gone after the past couple of years of traits and professionalism. I think you see bits of them and all those other guys too. And, you know, there's potential with Anthony Richardson to become that. Um, and, and CJ Stroud, I think has, you know, a lot of that, but, but less of the measurables. And, uh, but that, that's kind of my takeaway is that uh, after getting to Kentucky specifically, I definitely, I saw a little bit more in Will Levis than maybe I was expecting going in. I think one thing that's sort of been overlooked or not totally appreciated is just how, uh, I mean, like, I, I don't think they, I, mean, I don't want to say they couldn't trade up, but it would have taken a lot to trade up because the, you know, the, the reports are that the Bears saw DJ Moore as equivalent to another first round pick. I think he was more than, uh, I, I think they would have taken him over another first round pick. So if you're the Colts trying to make that, you know, trying to top that offer, do you have to include if you even if you include Pittman, you've probably still got to include at least another second round pick, probably another first round pick. Um, so, I, I mean, at that point, I just don't think you have the the assets to acquire the, the top pick, at least if you're going to be reasonable and responsible about what you're doing. Um, so I, I just think and again, the team's not going to come out and say that they're not going to say. Uh, hey, we, I mean, at some levels they've said we didn't think it was worth it or whatever, but they're not going to go over the top with that. But I, I just don't know if people have totally appreciated how hard it would have been to get the first round pick. Um, now, again, if, if you thought Bryce Young was the next Joe Burrow, maybe you maybe it's not too high. Maybe it is definitely worth doing. But um, I just think it's interesting, um, you, you know, that that's the that, that I don't know if that's been discussed enough, but uh, um, it's interesting to hear you talk yeah. about Levis that way. I mean. Uh, there's so much stuff out there at this time of year. Everybody's throwing stuff out there. I'm not saying some people don't have good information, um, but is there, I mean, but 
Levis was the guy for the Colts, according to the rumors early. Now you see him down in the second round of some mock drafts. It'll be really interesting to see where he ends up going um, for the Colts. I still like the idea. Can you get uh, Will Anderson with the fourth pick and then try to trade up for Hendon Hooker? I mean, in some respects, that's uh, sort of the ideal situation uh, for me at this point. What are your thoughts on uh, on whether that can fall in place or not? Yeah, that's what I've thought more and more about in recent weeks is I've just some of the points I touched on with Hendon that he just really seems like if he was healthy, that that would really be a good fit for them there. You know, there's the two knocks on him are the ACL, which is obviously big. And then he's 26 years old. And that that does matter to a point. But the Colts tend to like older prospects. They like guys to come in mature and ready to be that kind of a person and not overwhelmed. Um, some of the mistakes Chris Ballard has made, he's admitted uh, guys like Quincy Wilson were not mature enough. So he he really trusts his scouting when he feels like the player has the maturity. So I've thought about that situation. I, I think the only way, though, that it, from a it, from an organizational plan standpoint, the only way to pull that off that that doesn't just risk everything would be you've got to be willing to not land Hendon if that's what you're doing. So if you take Will Anderson at number four, you can start getting aggressive about, you know, looking late first. Maybe we can trade up into the late first, especially to get that fifth-year option. But for all you know, Hendon Hooker could go in the teens somewhere. He could – I actually right. think you could – he could be a great fit in a place like Minnesota where you say, okay, he needs a year off anyway with the ACL and the scheme change. We've got Kirk Cousins under contract. Um, let's, you know, let's turn to him uh, in a year from now. You know, sort of set up your Jalen Hurts type of pick. Uh you know, the the Lions, you know, they, they have a second pick in the first round. They could look at the same thing with Jared Goff. So I think if the Colts were to do that, they'd have to accept, okay, we're going to try and get a hand in hooker if we can get him. But if we can't, that's when I think you have to gear up for next year's class with Caleb Williams and Drake May. And, of course, it's a tricky route. to. This is where I'm not, you know, he has to have the power to do this. Chris Ballard has to have the power from Jim Irsay to be able to not take a quarterback or this is never going to work. But if he believes that those guys next year are that special, that he's willing to risk not getting headed in order to possibly play for that, that could be a path. It just that's where like if it played out that way, you just got to be really prepared because if Henning goes off the board and you adjust and you you draft these other guys, I think you just have to draft the best developmental players you get, and then that's where I think more of a teardown has to happen because you almost have to be in tank mode at that point. They can't skip on a quarterback this year. And then, you know, just build another team that ends up picking like sixth or seventh next year. And nobody wants to move out of those first two picks. And then you're again in the same mode of, well, we can't get to the top. So maybe we'll wait another year. Like they have to eventually find a lane and just blow it open. And so that's the trickiest one to pull off. But I think there's there's a way you could justify it if you're having questions about Richardson and Levis. And uh, you just you just feel that good about either handing or. Caleb and your ability to actually pull that off. Yeah, that would be that would scare the heck out of me. I mean, and again, I don't, yeah. it, it, they're a really tough spot. I mean, the Colts are. It's because, like you say, you you don't know what's going to happen, and you can't. Uh, I mean, I, it's not like you can set up a trade with somebody picking twentieth in the first round and say, "Hey, if these things fall into place, let's do this trade and then take Hendon Hooker." Because, like you say, maybe he doesn't get to twentieth, or you know, and what are you giving up to trade that? Uh, you know, to trade up to twelfth or whatever the number is. So, um, man, it's it's just it's going to be a really really tricky spot for them to be in. Um, the interesting thing though is if they had a new GM, that would you'd probably be less scared about that, right? Or at least the GM would be. Like the GM GMs come be, in I, with a little bit of a blank slate. Uh, I also think, uh, you know, the analytical, I'm a numbers guy, and the analytical thing to do is take quarterbacks both years. <laughs> That's always a possibility, too. So uh, yeah. you can't, uh, you can't uh, under uh, appreciate that option as well. Um, I've been under the, I, I'm on the, the, the path with Richardson that says just flat out, you can't play quarterback in the NFL completing 55% of your passes. People compare him to Cam Newton. Cam Newton completed 69% of passes in college. Uh, people compare him to Jalen Hurts. Hurts completed 65% of his passes in college. They're just not, they're not, I mean, obviously he's, uh, you know, a great, maybe the best athlete at quarterback to come out, at least certainly the best since Cam Newton. 
I just don't think you can take a chance on him um, because you're counting on something that almost has never happened. Josh Allen's obviously the best example. I, I had I not like I've studied this thoroughly, but but really the last quarterback I could find before um, Allen that's at all comparable, and I don't think Allen's a great comparison, is Steve McNair. And that's a long time ago. Um, where are you at on uh, Richardson after watching him work out? Yeah, if you're trying to find a comp for Richardson, it's going to be very hard because Josh Allen is the closest in completion percentage. He was at 56%. But the key difference there is he played two years, and he came into the league just a very different type of uh, player. I mean, he spent you know, two years playing and just a more physically mature player, more, more ready to live in those ups and downs, I think, than, than Richardson was. Or Richardson is now, so it's very hard to find the one-year player. And usually, the guys who've succeeded on one year are, you know, Cam Newton, Kyler Murray. They won the Heisman in their one year, so they were already these, like, they were already the realized versions of these video game athletes that that made you impressed uh, by their measurables. Which is the argument for Richardson right now is that upside, but he hasn't put it together yet. So, but but I will say that like the the skepticism there is certainly warranted and i've thought a lot about that but when i went down there in gainesville i was kind of I, I came away more impressed with richardson because i was how should i say this i was less impressed with florida um you know i just came from ohio state and kentucky and th- those programs are just incredibly impressive with what like just how stable they are in the current coaches they have ryan day mark stoops they know what they are they know what they're not they have a brand they they kind of pull everyone on board to that and they develop, or they they mostly have a plan for their quarterback within that. Um, at least like with Will Levis, there's there's a lot to look into with the coordinator change did not play out well last year and they had some injuries, but culturally they were in a very good place. And uh, you know, in, in his relationship with the coach, the head coaches and his teammates and his ability to get that all on board. Um, and then at Ohio State, it's the opposite. It's like all the talent in the world is around them and the schemes are the same. Florida, there just wasn't a whole lot for Richardson to develop within. You're talking about a kid who's um, who grew up there in Gainesville, so he went to Florida because it was kind of his dream school. Uh, but he gets there at like the the one of the worst times Florida's ever had. The end of the Dan Mullen era just got very messy and chaotic. The the talent levels dipped in recruiting at a lot of key positions like wide receiver, and you know, they lost Kyle Pitts and just didn't have things to throw to. And then culturally, there was so much talk from. Uh, players that that I was around in, in the pro day about just how much of a mess that was when Billy Napier got there and how they had discipline issues and they had, um, they had roster upheaval. And you think about Anthony Richardson, he's a guy whose first year sat behind Kyle Trask. So, you know, that was a traditional type of path for a young quarterback. His second year, though, you know, he was competing with Emory Jones and he was, he was hurt. And that was sort of the Dan Mullen uh, era falling apart. I just think they whiffed on a lot of development with him to where this year he gets thrown out there and the the roster, you know, they, they had a very nice offensive line, but they have a new scheme, a new head coach trying to build a new culture and not really anything to throw to. And a guy who clearly had a lot of work to get done as a passer. I just don't think they got him the reps or the trajectory up within a system to set him up for a lot of success as a passer last year. So it's tricky. Cause I guess that, you know, you don't want to just build a case for a guy on excuses, but I think with Richardson, if if the concern is, you know, why wasn't he more polished? Why wasn't he more consistent? Or, you know, there are times when he comes off very young, uh, just in, in some of his just in some of his interviews. It's just like that's the only thing that was going to happen within this program, unless it turned out worse than that. Like he didn't go, he didn't get consumed by these these culture issues. In fact, they told a story after. Uh, after the Georgia game last year when they lost by 22, where Anthony stood up in a meeting and challenged all the players of like, you didn't just come here just to be here and put on a uniform. You came here to be something special. And I think in some levels he's he's talking to himself in those moments of he has all these amazing traits, but they haven't developed yet either. So he's a guy that I just think like he needs actual real development in a real stable system where um, he's not quite there yet as a passer or as a like an outgoing personality leader to completely overhaul and carry that on both ends. But if you can put him in a somewhat stable environment 
and give him consistent reps and experience as a passer, you know, there is a better chance at unlocking that upside than we ever saw last year. So I think the completion percentage is a very valid concern. I'm more concerned with the lack of starts uh, because of the track record there. But I think both of those, it's also hard to blame him that much for that because Florida, the situation they put him in, and remember doing this in the SEC too, and when you're crossover rivals, Florida State, like he was, it, it just wasn't set up for many easy wins. They played Florida State and uh, and Utah non-conference last year. Both teams ended up winning uh, more than 10 games. So uh, it just, it was easier to to understand how, how this guy was undeveloped. Whereas I think it's a contrast with Levis is that if you're concerned with parts of Levis's game about, you know, pocket presence and turnovers and, and that lack of polish, he's a fifth year senior. And so there's, on one hand, you can excuse some of Richardson's of like, no one's really helped him on this. And you you could, there's some positive you could spin into the fact that Anthony is so young and you don't want to crush a kid for not doing something he was never asked to do. Well, and heck, if you think about stability at quarterback, you think uh, the Indianapolis Colts after last year. So this would be a great place. <laughs> I'm sorry, so, um, well, well that's, that's exactly one of the things that... <laughs> Like with Levis and Richardson, I think I, I like both of them. It's just all about like can the can the team they go to actually put them on the path to fixing the things they need to fix, which is you know pocket presence for Levis and it's just consistent accuracy mechanics for Richardson and some of that leadership. Uh, the Colts are they they've got a long way to go there, and that's where I'll be interested to see what other moves they make because some of that's in the roster and some of that's in the leadership on offense and. Uh, they've they've got some work to do to help these kids out. Well, and let's talk about uh, the other quarterback out there, of course, is Lamar Jackson. Um, it was another interesting uh, – Joel spoke to Shane Steichen early in the morning uh, a week ago. Today we're doing the podcast on Monday. It was one week ago today. Um, and then he basically said no comment, said that you do your deal diligence on all players and said no comment about Lamar Jackson. Chris Ballard came out and basically said, you know, obviously you're going to look at him. Uh, and it's, I mean, I guess I don't want to say credit, but I mean, most of the, a lot of teams in the NFL have come out and said, oh, we don't want to even think about Lamar uh, Jackson, which is nuts. But to Ballard's credit, he didn't say that. He said, you know, obviously we're looking at him. And then Jim Irsay uh, was the last one to speak during the day. And really listening, see, reading what he said makes you think there's, I don't want to say there's no chance that Jackson's coming, but but he was much more, it seemed much less likely um, that, uh, the, that, that the Colts are a destination for Lamar Jackson after hearing Jim Irsay talk. What are your thoughts on, on the Colts and, and Lamar Jackson at this point? Yeah, it's one of those where, you know, the easy thing at this point is to come out and say you're not in on Lamar Jackson, like a lot of the league has done. So the fact that they're not saying that does show you the door is at least open. But it was interesting to notice the contrast between Chris Ballard's comments and Jim Irsay's, where Ballard seemed like, you know, why, yeah, why wouldn't you look into an MVP quarterback? They've gone up against him. They've gotten torched by him before. Uh, whereas Jim Irsay, you know, it was all kind of about the contract for him. And he's the one that's ultimately going to pay that contract. So he's the ultimate decision maker on that. And if if Lamar is dug in on needs a fully guaranteed deal and especially a long term, like five year fully guaranteed deal, it's hard to see the Colts being the team that's going to bridge that gap after Jim Mercy's comments about not believing in guarantees and also just some of the concerns about it. If they can find that much money to put into an escrow account with it by next year is when they would have to do that. So it's I, it, the door is open because Lamar has now, you know, he's drawn a line in the sand where he's basically said, I don't want to play for the Ravens anymore. I've asked for a trade out and whatever teams end up stepping up with a contract that's worth considering to him are going to be the options. And it's possible that, you know, enough other teams around the league are either out on that concept out on Lamar, just that they don't want that route or they're going with a rookie quarterback or they like the guy they have. There's, there is a route where the Colts end up being the best of whatever that leftover group is. But it's tricky because I, I just don't think they're going to come close to what he wants in a contract. He would have to really change his stance on that. Or maybe there's a compromise between the two of them where it's a little more than the Colts want to spend, but it's less than Lamar wants, but it's short term so he can sign a new deal. There's just a lot to iron out there, which is why it's 
um, it's it's kind of like a uh, you know I was asked on uh, on Kevin and Query like if, if this was a if, if Lamar Jackson was a team in the tournament what seed would it have and I'd say <laughs> a, a 12 seed you know like it's a sneaky option it's it's possible that the pulls the upset and it's the one the one team to come through in this scenario but I would not count on it based on the the gap they've got to close. Hey, those five twelves. There's always a five twelve every year, except this year when there wasn't one. But I really think, to me, what what strikes me is, I think this is less in the Colts. You know, there's the Ravens, there's Lamar Jackson, and there's the Colts. Theoretically, if you make a list of who controls this, the Colts are a distant third. I mean, uh, a lot of it comes down to, like you said, does, is Lamar Jackson only going to play football again if he gets two hundred and fifty million guaranteed over five years? Um, I don't see that happening for the Colts. Um, the other thing, but but if you offer, you know, if he's willing to come down to 150 million guaranteed over three years, you said, I mean, I think you'd have to take a long, hard look at that. But the flip oh, yeah. side of that is, reportedly, the Ravens offered him 135 over three years guaranteed, um, and with two years that were non-guaranteed. So why, if you were the Ravens and he signs with you for 150 over three? Why wouldn't you just match that as the Ravens and keep him? Now, maybe he doesn't want to play for the Ravens, but all of a sudden you've got a bigger headache because now the Ravens have to trade him, um, and he probably has to really prove that he doesn't want to play there. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, so I, yeah, it just seems like, I, I mean, again, it sort of goes back to another version of what we were just saying where the Colts don't control our, our you know, the cards they're holding aren't great in this whole situation. It's not. I think the best chance they have is they've got to, yeah, they would have to meet with Lamar and convince him that he does want out of the Ravens and he needs to come to the Colts. But again, part of that pitch will not be the guaranteed contract that he wants. So that's the hard thing is, well, his stance is always going to be, if you really want me, how about you prove it? How about you you pay the money? But I think that the contract situation is also, there is a Ravens element to this where you know, they they don't want to pay the high guarantees, uh, a fully guaranteed deal, in part because he's getting injured. He's missed 10 games in two years. Lamar can turn that around on them and say, no, that's why I want the guaranteed deal is you get me hurt all the time. <laughs> like you, he is not. He, it's crazy. He has never attempted as many passes in a season as Jalen Hurts had in each of the last two years. Jalen Hurts is a young quarterback who's in a we consider the Eagles a super run-heavy offense, and they're trying to make it easy on him. And he's throwing the ball way more than Lamar has because the Ravens kind of put everything on uh, either design run plays heavily with Lamar because they don't have a bell cow back, or they call pass plays that end up becoming scrambles anyway because they don't have anything at wide receiver where the, the only veterans they've brought in in the past couple of years have been Des Bryant uh, and Deshaun Jackson, <laughs> which is not an attempt. So, <laughs> so it's like Lamar could, that's why I think Lamar just might be ready to move on and, and maybe distrusting of the Ravens and what they put around them. You know, the Ravens also in that uh, NFLPA survey on all the teams, they had like the worst grade for the training staff, had a lot of injury issues there. Uh, you know, so it would, it would have to come down to Lamar just, he just is, it's just a broken relationship and it, it sure sounds like it might be a broken relationship. It just depends on if the Colts can look like a solution to that. I think on some levels you can talk yourself into, yes, they've got Jonathan Taylor. Uh, they've got Shane Steichen, who's designed this kind of an offense before, uh, you know, better receivers than he's had. You know, but there's cons on the other side, which is, you know, they, they, they aren't as into the guaranteed contracts either. Their offensive line is a problem, you know, and they're also not a franchise that has historically – put a lot into the wide receiver position to where if Michael Pittman Jr. leaves, are they going to keep investing in that or is it going to fall back more on him? So they've got, they pretty much need to craft just an incredible pitch that gets him to be willing to take their deal, you know, even though he would not have accepted it from the Ravens. It's yeah, they're, they're not exactly in control on that. And, but and then but you know you not only have to pitch yourself and convince Lamar Jackson that the Colts are the answer you have to convince the Ravens that you're the answer because why won't they just match the deal and then as everyone's uh, said a thousand times over you're just doing the Ravens negotiations for them which you don't want to do so that makes it really I, I, I like I said I just don't it just seems like it's a really complicated uh, a path to get there in terms of what yeah. they're keeping 
both the Ravens and Jackson happy. Um, the injuries are obviously an issue. I looked up, um, you hear that uh, mobile quarterbacks get hurt more. I looked up at the most mobile quarterbacks in NFL in the last whatever years. I don't remember the exact parameters I used. I think that they do get hurt sooner, but I also think that within, I mean, five years is probably looking at what history says. I don't think Lamar Jackson is going to completely break down within the next five years. I don't know that he has much more than that, given the way this stuff works and looking at, again, just looking at the history, that does not mean Lamar Jackson is going to be the same as some of these other players, um, the Cam Newton and the Michael Vicks of the world. Um, but the history says that he, it seems like he's going to break down eventually. I do think that the five years would be okay. I just don't know that you want to count on him um, beyond that. I also think the Jonathan Taylor piece is interesting. If, you know, does, you know, playing with a back like Taylor is Jackson rushing for 750 yards instead of 1200. And what does that mean in terms of the wear and tear on him? Um, and you would think that'd be a, a bonus and a way to um, maybe, you know, make him less of an injury risk. But but again, I, I just I don't see a path to which you're going to keep Jackson and the Ravens happy without, uh, you know, without making some kind of crazy deal that you don't want to make when you combine whatever you have to give to the Ravens, plus the money that you're giving to Jackson. Yeah, the one advantage oh. the Colts could have on that, though, is that they currently have the number four picked offer. And if the Ravens are moving on from Lamar, then they need to find another quarterback of the future unless they think it's Tyler Huntley. But this might be the best chance they can get because any team you trade Lamar to, if you're going to get future picks out of them, it's going to be late picks. You, that's what you assume. If he's out there playing, they drop an MVP quarterback in, that pick's not going to be as high as number four. And they could be very interested in someone like Anthony Richardson to run a similar system and just kind of have a reset at that position. Again, though, that's what the Colts have to weigh. You know, do they want to give up the number four pick in next year's first? to get this on top of the contract. But I think that'd be their best. That's the closest level of control they have is uh, is showing the Ravens like, hey, if you're ready to move on to or if if you just don't believe Lamar wants to be there and he's going to be a problem if, you know, if you just match the deal, like maybe we're the best place for you to move on to because you get the number four pick and get the new quarterback to come in. Yeah, I think I believe Peter King uh, reported today that there was some talk. Uh, this was I shouldn't say reported because uh, he was it was more um, this is a possibility as opposed to saying this is a real fact, but that the Ravens would take just the number four pick. So would you do just a number four pick for Lamar Jackson if and, or, or what does the salary number for you have to be for Lamar in that scenario? I would definitely do that if I'm the Colts. Again, it's not my money though, <laughs> so that's right. the that's the tricky hangup of it. But like, I, I mean, in terms of building around Lamar Jackson, where you just spend this year's number four pick, which you're already going to spend on a quarterback, and then uh, you know, then then the cost for him is the salary, which of you know, I'm guessing will be you know upper forty millions, something like that. Could be even be as high as fifty million. Obviously, that's a, that creates a challenge. That's where they start having to do some things um, to, to get the cap to work out. But again, there's some of these guys, some of these contracts they've been needing to move on from anyway. I guess the one trick there is that you do want to extend Jonathan Taylor for this type of situation we're talking about where he takes the load off of Lamar. But in general, I, I, I think they can find a way to make that work. And it, it does feel like you know th this offense right now uh, – you know, we talked about what's not there, what they haven't added yet. You know, they, they have a hole at, you know, a couple spots of the offensive line. They really could use more of a, a slot wide receiver, maybe more of a number one tight end. Lamar Jackson helps make up for a lot of this. That's kind of, to me, the advantage of having a quarterback on a big deal. There's such an obsession with keeping the quarterback salary low. And it's wonderful when you can do it and the guy can hit a ceiling early on like Jalen Hurts did. But there's a reason the Chiefs just won the Super Bowl paying Patrick Mahomes as much as they did. And uh, and the Bills have been in it, you know, paying Josh Allen as much as they have, is that when the player can perform at an MVP level, he creates savings for you elsewhere. And uh, I think Lamar can do that with, you know, so, some level of the wide receivers, certainly some parts of the offensive line, you can, uh, you know, you can worry less about pass protection when with the way that Lamar can move the pocket and just some of the things you can call for him. 
and maybe even less of the defense because you expect to have more of a you know more of an offensive punch. Right now, the Colts have spending they've been spending more on defense than offense for several years. And they got a Lamar Jackson type team because of his salary. That's where that would flip. But also, you expect to be that much better on offense to where you know your winning team, your team build would be more like what the Colts were when they were at their best. With uh, you know their money was on the offensive side of, of the ball with Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, and all those guys. And then on defense, they just picked a couple of spots to go after, which for them were edge rusher, you know, Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis to close games when you have the lead. That's the kind of team I think Chris Ballard could build really well is invest in the defensive line as kind of a closing unit to an offense that's that's uh, very high powered. And I think Lamar can get you there. I, I think he actually fits really well with uh, with the two wide receivers they have, Pierce and Pittman, who are kind of late in the down uh, contested catch type of players that that aren't just timing based. And then Jonathan Taylor, I think the two of them could create the best run game in the NFL. With and then you add in kind of the Shane Steichen design elements to that, it could hit a really high ceiling. Obviously, there's risk with the injury and all that, but I would much rather do that than than take a chance on all the many dominoes that have to fall correctly to get a rookie quarterback to become that guy on the field, off the field, confidence, health, and then have that still hit a window with the roster around him and the leadership in place. I think it's a lot easier to just go out and get an MVP quarterback. Yeah. I, I, to me, I mean, again, it would depend on the money. I'm not going to go 250 million guaranteed and maybe Lamar Jackson isn't coming short of that, but boy, if I could give it the fourth pick and get Lamar Jackson for a three year, $150 million deal, maybe two years non-guaranteed. That would be really hard to pass up. Although, as you noted, uh, the the Colts are thirty million shy of the salary cap of being able to bring him in for that, um, and that's uh, and they have not been willing to play the cap games that a lot of teams do. Um, so that's a whole another uh, area that they'd have to to figure out. But uh, all right, well, we will wrap it up there. Uh, uh, Joel will be back uh, next week, uh, barring any major news the rest of this week on the Colts. Uh, Nate has his 10 thoughts after watching the three pro days coming out soon. Uh, so keep an eye on for that. Uh, Joel's got a piece on, uh, looking at the quarterback situation. Um, uh, so, you know, again, that'll, that, that should be posting later this week as well. So keep coming to Indy star for all your Colts, uh, needs. Uh, thank you very much for listening.